I'm Steph. I'm Kim. And, and this, this is Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. Good evening, true crimers. Hey, everyone. <laughs> Sorry we're late. Kimbo was sick with, not with the COVID. <laughs> she was sick with the fake COVID. Yeah, I got my injection and then I felt pretty bad after it, but all good now. <laughs> well, she's double jabbed now and getting ready for the third one. Apparently there'll be a new one coming out in six months and we're going to have another one. Yeah, I was reading about that earlier. It's all happening. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I do got something. So, with the Gabby Petito case, how oh, Brian nice. Laundry was the main suspect in that case mm. and nobody could find him anywhere. And everybody was speculating all these little speculations. He has been found. Unfortunately, he is dead. He has been confirmed dead and they have they, found his remains. I was going to say that I read something like it was inconclusive, his autopsy. Yeah, they did the autopsy. But I think they've got more to do still, don't They've they? sent him to an anthropologist mm, I to love try that. and determine how That'd he did die. amazing job. But... I've read a lot of different stuff, and once again, oh, there's so much. That's the thing. Like, I want to cover it. Yeah, but there's so much. What about this and that and yeah. the theories? And so I think we need to wait till all the facts are there. So, yeah, they found his skull. They found his skeletal remains and personal items. So that's a really sad ending to the whole thing. Which, mm. Yeah. What were you telling me about the symbol that um, Gabby was doing? Oh, uh, like if it's like supposed to be a thing, so that if you're like in domestic violence situation and that and you can go to like people of authority really and that if you do the hand gesture then they're supposed to be able to realize hey this person is in trouble they need help and they're supposed to be able to get you out of that situation all righty then the other thing i do have and it's really really sad a precious little four-year-old cleo smith Mm. has been abducted, I'm pretty certain, like once again, lots yeah. of speculation. Well, I'm pretty sure everyone in Australia would know about this case. Yeah, so right she's now. been missing for like 11 days yeah. now. It's crazy. Um, and they're looking for a small sedan that was seen leaving the area. Yeah, about, they reckon, 3 to 3.30 in the morning. In the morning of, mm. of the, her disappearance. So there is a sleeping bag that's gone missing along with Cleo. If anyone knows anything or even has the slightest, you know, slightest yeah, thought. Anything can help. Anything can help and it could be the piece of the puzzle. So please call the police or Crime Stoppers mm. and, and yeah, fingers crossed that she gets home safe. I know. She's so precious. She's beautiful. And I can't imagine, like, how her parents are feeling the right now. Her family are just going through so much. Yeah. And that's pr – I did have another one. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my beautiful daughter, once again, has been – I've got lots of beautiful daughters, and um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say their names. So <laughs> this one starts with a J, and I love her so much. She sent me some more information today, and it was on my phone, but now that I'm not in service, it's mm. disappeared, and I can't remember. We'll have to um, look at it for next week. So that will be in next week's episode. Well, oh, it was something to do with – who stuck all the bodies in the crawl, crawl space? Oh, John Wayne Gacy? John Wayne Gacy. So 
one guy, that the fifth victim, mm. I can't remember his name, but we'll tell you next episode, his family just thought he started a new life somewhere oh, and didn't want to do with them, and they've just, through Found DNA, him. figured out. That, oh. oh, how sad is that? That is sad. But At least I, his family will have closure. I mean, you kind of would prefer to think he was alive and just doing his own thing. But, yeah. Uh, that's really sad. So I will provide further details on that next Mm. All right, what are you doing? Well, at first I thought it would be a good time to talk about Tristan Frank, who is another child missing from Western Australia. Oh. Yeah, but he he went missing last year, or in December, and he is still missing. That is awful. Yeah. So if anyone sees or knows anything about Tristan Frank, he is a 14-year-old boy, and he went missing. He was travelling from Northern Territory to Western Australia to stay with some family and that. But, yeah, he's missing, and police apparently searched thousands of caves, but they have no leads or anything. Is he the young Indigenous kid? Yeah. That is so sad. Yeah, so if anyone has any information, go to Crime Stoppers or the police, or so bring him home too. Yeah, that's hopefully, so I know. I keep seeing all these missing people or little kids, and I'm just like, this needs to stop. Leave people's children alone. Yeah. So if anyone want- has any information about any of those, yep, call Crime Stoppers. Yeah, call Crime Stoppers. And I guess we'll get on to today's case, which, which is going to be horrible because that <laughs> is what you do. Okay. Yeah, this one was recommended. I know I knew it, but. I guess my brain just like kind of decided to leave out how absolutely horrible it was because like I remembered this case but in my mind it wasn't as bad but then when I went back and I was researching it again I was like this is horrendous. This is really bad so it does involve a lot of torture and abuse against like a child. Oh my god. Yeah I know it's really bad. I know I keep trying to I keep going to get a I know they're not really any better though, so it was just horrible. So today I'm going to be talking about Sylvia Likens, and I'm sure many people will know this case. So if you are still here, let's continue. So first we'll talk about Gertrude Banaszewski, and I don't know if I'm saying that right because I struggle. Sounds good to me. She was born Gertrude Van Fossen in 1929 to Molly Myrtle and Hugh Marcus Van Fossen Sr. My goodness, it's amazing. <laughs> Both were originally from Illinois and were of American and Dutch descent. She was the third of six children and little is known about her childhood, except that she shared an extremely close bond with her father and didn't have a good relationship with her mother. Oh. A further wedge was driven between them when her father died in 1940, and she, at 11 years old, she watched her father die of a sudden heart attack. Oh. Six years later, she dropped out of high school at the age of 16 to marry 18-year-old John Stefan Banaszewski, who was originally from Youngsville, Pennsylvania. They had four children, John Banaszewski had a volatile temper and occasionally beat his wife. 
Despite all this, the two would remain together for 10 years prior to their first divorce. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Following her divorce, Banaszewski married a man named Edward Guthrie. This marriage lasted just three months before they divorced, so that one didn't last very long. Shortly thereafter, Banaszewski remarried her first husband, oh. having two more children, and the couple divorced for the second time in 1963. Weeks after her third divorce, Banaszewski's began a relationship with a 22-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright. Hello, how old is she? She's like, <laughs> I don't know. She's like in a I can't do math. <laughs> Who was also physically abusive towards her. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she knows how to pick them. Yeah. She had one child with him, Dennis Lee Wright Jr., and shortly after the birth of her son, Wright abandoned Banaszewski. She filed a paternity suit against Wright for financial support of their child although Wright was seldom able to pay. In 1965, Banaszewski lived alone with her seven children, Paula, <laughs> Paula, oh. Paula, who was 17, Stephanie, 15, John, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis C. Wright Jr., 1. In addition to the occasional check she received, from her first husband, which she primarily relied upon for, to financially support her children, she also occasionally performed odd jobs for the neighbours and acquaintances, such as sewing and cleaning. Financial problems were quickly exacerbated when Banaszewski discovered that her 17-year-old daughter, Paula, was three months pregnant after a fling with a middle-aged married man. Oh, super dear. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Luna's barking. Around this time, Banaszewski's health declined considerably. She was chronically ill with a number of unidentified issues, and she stopped using proper hygiene and barely ate. What kind of hygiene did she use? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Not proper, I guess. Eventually, these factors began to affect her outward appearance, resulting in a receding hairline, sunken eyes, and an overall skeletal appearance. Oh. She was 5 feet and 6 inches in height, and she weighed only 45 kilos, and was described as, quote, haggard, underweight, asthmatic, chain smoker, suffering from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, and a recent miscarriage. Not to mention the seven kids and the one on the way. Mm. She began to present herself as Mrs. Wright, claiming that she had in fact married Dennis before he abandoned her, which allowed her to keep up a veneer of respectability. By June 1965, Sylvia and Jenny Likens, so this is where we start talking about Sylvia and Jenny, and they resided with their parents in Indianapolis, and on the 3rd of July, their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly thereafter, Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Banaszewski the mother of two girls with whom the sisters had recently become acquainted with while studying at Arsenal Technology High School, Paula and Stephanie Banaszewski. At the time of the, this boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester that she would care for his daughters until his return as if they were her own children. Shortly after the July 4th holiday, the sisters moved into 3850 East New York Street in order for their father and later their mother 
to travel to the east coast with the carnival, and for this Gertrude would receive weekly boarding fees of $20 to care for their daughters, until they returned to collect Sylvia and Jenny in November of that year. Lester did not inspect the home before leaving. Had he have done so, he would have discovered that Gertrude's home had no stove or microwave, that there were only enough beds for half the people in the house, that the only things Gertrude kept in her pantry was bread and crackers, that most of the surfaces in the home were caked with thick layers of dirt, and only enough plates and eating utensils for three people. And you just let your kids stay there without checking that out. Yeah. The first week of Sylvia and Jenny's lives at the Banaszewski home went relatively well. They attended high school and attended teenage social functions with the Banaszewski children as well as church with Gertrude on Sundays. When Lester's $20 payment failed to arrive, though, Banaszewski threw a temper tantrum, screaming at the girls, quote, I took care of you two bitches for nothing before forcing them to lie across her bed with their skirts and underwear around their ankles while she beat them. Oh, dear. Shortly thereafter, Lester and Betty Likens came into the town to check on the girls. Neither of them made any reference to the beatings, presumably under the threat from Banaszewski. The next week, Sylvia and Jenny went through the neighbourhood garbage, collecting old Coca-Cola bottles to sell in order to get money for candy. When they came home with the candy, Banaszewski accused them of stealing. When Sylvia explained how she had gotten the candy, Banaszewski accused her of lying and made her bend over her bed as before while she beat her across the buttock with a paddle. Shortly thereafter, the Banaszewski children came to Gertrude after a church social and told her that they were disgusted with the amount of food they had seen Sylvia eating. Banaszewski told Sylvia that she was angry that Sylvia would do something to ruin her physical appearance and forced the girl to eat a hot dog piled with condiments. When Sylvia vomited, Banaszewski forced her to scoop up the vomit and eat it. Oh, my God. Yeah, things are really starting to go downhill. Uh, But just for anyone who, like, can't handle it, it does get drastically worse. So if you can't handle that, then you – Definitely shouldn't keep listening and come back next week. Soon afterwards, Lester and Betty Likens came again into the town to check on the girls. Per Banaszewski's instructions, Sylvia did not mention this incident. And are they pay- are the parents paying this woman now? Or I'm not sure. It didn't really say. I'm assuming probably a little bit. I don't know. In August of 1965, Sylvia was subject to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach, whom she had met in the spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. In response to hearing this, Gertrude asked if she had, quote, ever done anything with a boy, to which Likens, unsure of her meaning, replied, quote, I guess so, and offered that she had gone skating with the boys there and had once gone to the park on the beach with them and Jenny. Continuing the conversation with Stephanie and Jenny, Likens mentioned that she had once lain under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, quote, Why did you do that, Sylvia? Likens replied, I don't know, and shrugged. Several days later, 
Gertrude returned to the subject with lichens, telling her, quote, You're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby. Lichens thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, Yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. However, Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house that whenever they, quote, did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. Not sure that quite works. But oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. She then kicked Sylvia in the genitals, and Paula, herself overweight, three months pregnant, and also jealous of Lycan's physical appearance, then participated in attacking her, knocking her off the chair onto the kitchen floor, shouting, quote, you ain't fit to sit in a chair. Oh, dear. Thereon, Banaszewski only allowed Sylvia to sit in the chair with her permission. Around this time, Banaszewski also began allowing her older children to use Sylvia as a sort of living, quote, plaything, with the games ranging from beating to being pushed down the stairs. Yeah. Banaszewski justified her attacks by accusing Likens of being a prostitute and delivering bizarre sermons to her children and Sylvia about the filthiness of prostitutes and women in general. The day after Banasuski kicked Sylvia, according to Jenny, as an act of vengeance, Sylvia and Jenny told their classmates that they had seen Paula and Stephanie having sex with boys in exchange for money. Oh, no. Yeah. When Stephanie's 15-year-old boyfriend, Coy Hubbard, discovered that Sylvia and Jenny had said this, he came to the Banasuski home and beat Sylvia. From then on, Hubbard, encouraged by Banaszewski, made frequent visits to the Banaszewski home, during which she would instruct the boy to practice his judo on Sylvia. Also around this time, she got Sylvia's best friend, a 13-year-old named Anna Sisko, alone long enough to convince her that Sylvia had been telling boys at school that Anna's mother was a whore. Oh my gosh, this is awful. Yeah. When Banaszewski took Anna to see Sylvia, she directed Anna in a violent attack on the girl. Soon after, Banaszewski told one of Paula's friends, a girl named Judy Duke, that Sylvia had been spreading rumours about her mother and pitted the girls against each other in a fist fight. During the fight, Banaszewski instructed Jenny to punch Sylvia, and when Jenny refused, Gertrude began to beat her in the face with her fists until Jenny finally agreed to punch Sylvia. And Jenny um, had polio, and she has to walk with a brace on her leg and that, so Jenny's like, I don't really want to do this, but she got beat herself if she didn't. In August of 1965, the vacant house next door to the Banaszewski residence was purchased. This makes me so mad, this part. Was purchased by a middle-aged couple named Phyllis and Raymond Vermillion. Phyllis, seeing the number of children Banaszewski cared for, believed that she would make a good babysitter for her two young children and that she would also be helping her out by paying her for her services. Oh, no. The Vermillions arranged a backyard barbecue so that the two families could get to know each other. During the course of the barbecue, Phyllis noticed Sylvia wandering around the yard with a pronounced black eye. Paula proudly announced to Phyllis that she was the one who had given it to her. Then, under Banaszewski's supervision, 
Paula approached Sylvia with a glass of steaming water and threw it in her face. And neither of the Vermilions reported this incident to the authorities. Mm. On one occasion, Paula beat Sylvia about the face with such force that she broke her own wrist, having primarily focused her blows upon Sylvia's teeth and eyes. Later on, Paula used the cast on her wrist to beat her further. Far out. Where are these parents? <sighs> well, they're carnivaling. Two months later, Phyllis went to Vanaziski's home to borrow something. Over the course of a few minutes she, that she was there, she noticed Sylvia wandering around in a daze with a swollen lip and a black eye that had swollen shut. To demonstrate how this had happened, Paula took off her belt and began to beat Sylvia with, in front of Phyllis. Oh my goodness. Once again, she did not report this. Around the time that Phyllis Vermillion witnessed Paula beat Sylvia, Sylvia came home from school and told Banaszewski that she needed a sweatsuit for gym class. When she told Sylvia that they could not afford one, Sylvia stole one from the school. Banaszewski questioned Sylvia about her new gym outfit, eventually coercing Sylvia into a confession. Banaszewski inexplicably changed the topic of Sylvia stealing into the topic of Sylvia being a prostitute and threw Sylvia onto the ground where she repeatedly kicked her in the crotch before once again returning to the topic of the theft. To, quote, cure Sylvia of her sticky fingers, she, okay, trigger warning, she burned the tips of each of her fingers with a lit cigarette. Afterwards, she made Sylvia bend over while she whipped her with a belt. After this incident, the smokers in the Banaszewski home began putting their cigarettes out on Sylvia's body as a reminder for her not to steal. This is ridiculous. Oh, it gets so much worse. Sylvia went out again to sell old soda bottles for money. When she returned home, Banaszewski accused her of prostitution. Banaszewski took her into the living room of her home and forced Sylvia to strip naked in front of her sons and several neighbourhood boys on the threat of beating Jenny. Once Sylvia was fully naked, okay, this is really bad, Banaszewski handed her a glass Coca-Cola bottle and forced Sylvia to masturbate with it for the boys. Following the Coke bottle incident, Sylvia became incontinent. Oh my god. Yeah. Because of this, Banaszewski decided that she was no longer fit to live with humans and locked her in the basement. The lack of a toilet in the basement forced Sylvia to defecate and urinate on the floor. When Banaszewski saw this, she began a, quote, bathing regime to cleanse Sylvia, whom she'd been calling Dirty Girl. The regime consisted of filling Gertrude's clawfoot bathtub with scalding water, binding Sylvia's wrists and ankles, and then dunking Sylvia into it. The regime was administered sometimes once or many times a day, and sometimes not at all. Following the baths, Paula Banaszewski would rub handfuls of salt over Sylvia's nude body. During this period, Banaszewski took on 14-year-old Ricky Hobbs, a neighbourhood boy, as her, quote, personal assistant when dealing with Sylvia. Hobbs, an honour student from a middle-class family with no previous legal trouble, 
experienced a sudden shift in personality upon becoming Ganathuski's assistant, blindly following whatever order she gave him. Banazuski's children turned Sylvia into a money-making opportunity, charging neighbourhood children a nickel to gawk at the nude Sylvia or to push her down the stairs to the basement, where she was now kept when she was not being bathed or put on display. Oh my goodness. Yeah. She was kept constantly naked and rarely fed. When she was allowed to eat, it was in a weird way, such as an instance in which Banasuski insisted that she eat soup with her fingers. Often, Banasuski and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., would make Sylvia clean the basement by allowing her to eat her own feces, and gave Sylvia a container in which she could collect her urine, which she was then made to drink. This is horrid, Kimberly. I know, this is so bad. Sometime around this period, Jenny managed to send contact to her and Sylvia's older sister, Diana, who was married and had a family of her own. Jenny outlined the horrors that she and Sylvia were experiencing and instructed Diana to come to contact the police and come rescue them. Please tell me she does. No. She believed that Jenny was simply displeased with being punished and that she was making up the story so that she could come live with her. Oh, my God. Wouldn't you check it out? (sighs) Yeah. Also around this time, one of the neighborhood children who had been been by to see Sylvia, a 12-year-old named Judy Duke, went home and told her mother they were beating and kicking Sylvia. And the girl's mother replied that that's what happened when someone was being punished. People are so dumb. Oh, you literally, it's the worst. So many people. Mm. Shortly thereafter, the Banaszewski's reverend, Roy Julian, visited them as part of a program he had set up to see each of his parishioners at home. While he and Banaszewski drank coffee, she complained to him that Sylvia had been an intense burden on her, claiming that the girl was a prostitute who had been servicing married men and had gotten pregnant, although at the time Paula was several months pregnant. Gertrude insisted that her daughter was a virgin and that Sylvia was attempting to pass off her own misdeeds onto the pure Paula. Oh, my goodness. Banaszewski and the Reverend prayed for Sylvia's salvation before the Reverend left. When the Reverend returned again a few weeks later, Paula told the Reverend during prayers that she, quote, had hatred in her heart for Sylvia to which Benazuski interjected that the opposite was true. Shortly after this, Diana came by to visit her sisters. Benazuski refused to allow her into the home, at first telling her that Lester had contacted her and instructed her not to allow Diana into the home. When Diana questioned this, Benazuski threatened to call the police and have her arrested for trespassing. Diana hid nearby the house until she spotted Jenny outside and then approached her. Jenny told her older sister that she was not allowed to talk to her and then ran away. Concerned, Diana contacted social services, and when a social worker arrived at the home, Banaszewski informed her that she had kicked Sylvia out of the house for being physically unclean and a prostitute, and that Sylvia had since run away. Oh, my God. So, yep. 
Banaszewski then managed to get Jenny alone long enough to inform her that if she told the social worker the truth, Jenny would join her sister naked in the basement. Jenny then told the social worker that Sylvia had indeed run away. No way. The social worker returned to her office where she filled a report stating that no more calls needed to be made there. So, that's that. No. On October 20th, Gertrude called the police to come arrest a boy at her home. Robert Bruce Hanlon was a local youth who claimed that the Banaszewski children had stolen things from his basement. He had come to the home early in the evening, demanding that Banaszewski return his things. When she refused, he attempted to sneak into the home to be taken to take them back. Phyllis Vermillion witnessed Hanlon being put in the back of a squad car and approached the police to speak on his behalf. As she had earlier overheard the argument between Banaszewski and Hanlon over the stolen goods, she made no mention of Sylvia during her conversation with the police. I hate this woman. I hope she goes to jail. <laughs> on October 21st, Banaszewski instructed John Jr., Coy and Stephanie to bring Sylvia up from the basement and tie her to a bed, telling Sylvia that if she could hold her bladder through the night, she would be permitted to sleep upstairs again. When Banaszewski checked Sylvia the next morning and discovered she had wet the bed, she made her dress, then took her into the living area where she once again forced her to perform a striptease for her sons and the neighbourhood boys, again forcing Sylvia to masturbate with a Coca-Cola bottle. When Sylvia was finished, she was allowed to dress. After a few moments, Gertrude brought up Sylvia's lies about Paula and Stephanie and declared, again, this is really bad, quote, you have branded my daughters, so I will brand you. Sylvia was forcibly stripped naked, tied down and gagged while one of Banaszewski's children heated up a sewing needle with a series of matches. When the needle was orange, Gertrude used it to carve and burn the letter I and part of the letter M into Sylvia's stomach. She then instructed Ricky Hobbs to continue carving letters to spell out the phrase, I'm a prostitute and proud of it. Oh my god. Yep. At one point, Hobbs stopped and asked Banaszewski how to spell prostitute. Banaszewski wrote it down on a piece of paper and the carving burning recommenced. Oh, this is unbearable. I know. It just, I just don't understand how it went on for so long and nobody mentioned anything. Like, people have seen her with black eyes and swollen lips and just looking terrible. Like, do something for this little girl. When finished, it consisted of actual carving and also third degree burns. Satisfied, Banaszewski left the room, leaving Sylvia tied, gagged, and naked. At this point, Ricky Paula and Banaszewski's 10-year-old daughter, Shirley, decided to give Sylvia another tattoo, an S in the middle of her chest. The three would later become confused as to whether they had intended S to stand for Sylvia or slave. But they reckon it was slave. Ricky burned the bottom curve of the S into Sylvia. He then either choked or changed his mind because he then ordered Jenny to come over and carve the top half. Although threatened, Jenny refused. Ricky relented and ordered Shirley to finish the tattoo. The 10-year-old 
choked and accidentally carved the curve backwards so that the numeral three appeared on her chest. Oh, this is awful. <laughs> this poor little girl's in so much pain. Banaszewski re-entered the room at this point to address the still-bound and gagged Sylvia. Quote, what are, you do- what are you going to do now, Sylvia? You can't get married now. You can't undress in front of anyone. What are you going to do now? Sylvia was ungagged to address Banaszewski. She replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. It's on there. Hubbard then took Sylvia back to the basement where he used her for judo practice for a while before returning home. In the middle of the night, Jenny likened back into the basement to visit her sister where Sylvia told her, quote, I'm going to die, I can tell. Oh my God. Shortly after Jenny's visit, Banaszewski inexplicably went into the basement and brought Sylvia upstairs and allowed her to sleep in one of the beds. She was allowed to sleep until noon of the next day, October 23rd. When Banaszewski woke her, Banaszewski and Stephanie took her into the bathroom and gave her a warm, soapy bath. After the bath, Banaszewski and Paul addressed Sylvia and then dictated a letter to her intended to look like a runaway letter to her parents. For reasons unknown, Banaszewski dictated that Sylvia address the letter, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Likens, the words which Banaszewski dictated were, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night, and they said that they would pay me if I would give them something. So he got in the car, and they all got what they wanted, and when they got finished, they beat me up and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she got. I've tore up the new, a new mattress and peed on it. I have also cost Gertie doctor's bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. He instructed Sylvia not to sign it. After Sylvia finished the letter, Banaszewski began formulating a plan to have John Jr. and Jenny take Sylvia to a nearby garbage dump and leave her there to die. When Sylvia overheard this, she ran to the front door, but in her emaciated and mutilated state, moved so slowly that Banaszewski was able to grab her just as she reached the front door and dragged her back into the house. Once Banaszewski settled Sylvia down, she took her into the kitchen and made her some toast. Sylvia attempted to eat it, but then said she couldn't swallow. Banaszewski took down the curtain rod in the kitchen and beat Sylvia in the mouth with it. John then took Sylvia into the basement and tied her up, while Banaszewski prepared a plate of crackers for Sylvia. When she offered the crackers to Sylvia, Sylvia replied, Feed it to the dog, it's hungrier than I am. Banaszewski repeatedly punched Sylvia in the stomach before leaving her in the basement. On the next day, October 24th, Banaszewski came into the basement and attempted to bludgeon Sylvia. First she tried to hit her with a chair but missed and broke it against the wall. Next she tried to beat her over the head with a paddle but swung it in such a wide arc that it came back against her own face. Good. Yeah, blacking her eye. To stop the strange show, Hubbard stepped in and beat Sylvia unconscious with a broomstick. 
Over the course of that night and into the morning hours of October 25th, Sylvia beat the basement floor with a scoop, scoop portion of an iron shovel. Next door neighbours would later report considering calling the police, but no one did. Ooh. Yep. By the morning of October 26th, Sylvia was unable to either speak intelligibly or correctly move her limbs. Gertrude moved her into the kitchen and having propped her against the wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk. She threw her to the floor in frustration when she was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips. She was then returned to the basement, and shortly thereafter, Sylvia became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, she was, uh, she was unable to recite anything beyond the first four letters or to raise herself off the ground. In response, Paula verbally threatened her. Gertrude then ordered Sylvia, who had defecated, to clean herself. That afternoon, she unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she had been given to eat, stating she could feel the looseness in her teeth. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, Quote, don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. In an attempt to wash Sylvia, a laughing John Banaszewski Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose brought to the house that afternoon by Randy Lepper at Gertrude's request. She desperately attempted to exit the basement but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response, Gertrude stamped on her head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after 5.30pm, Richard Hobbs returned to the residence and immediately proceeded to the basement. He slipped on the wet stairs and fell to the floor of the basement, to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Sylvia's emaciated and lacerated body after she had been ordered by her mother to clean her. Stephanie and Hobbs then decided to give Sylvia a warm, soapy bath and dress her in new clothes. She was not breathing, and Stephanie attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth resuscitation as Gertrude repeatedly shouted to the children in the house that Sylvia was faking her death. Oh my god. Gertrude Banaszewski initially beat Lycan's corpse with a book, shouting, Faker! Faker! in order to wake her. However, she soon panicked and instructed Hobbs to call the police from a nearby payphone. When police arrived at her address at approximately 6.30pm, Gertrude led the officers to Sylvia's body, laying on a soiled mattress in the bedroom, before handing them the letter she had forced Lycans to write, for Sylvia to write previously. She also claimed she had been, quote, doctoring the child for an hour or more prior to her death. When they were there, Jenny out loud said that, yeah, that's what happened. But then she got one of the police officers and was like, get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. So they arrested Banaszewski, her children, Hobbs and Hubbard, and they were held without bail pending their trials. Charges against Cisco, Duke, Monroe and Lepper were dismissed. Stephanie's lawyer got her a separate trial, and before it was they to begin, the district attorney dropped the murder charges. An autopsy of Sylvia Likens turned up over a hundred cigarette burns on her body. 
In addition to various second and third degree burns, severe bruising, and muscle and nerve damage. In her death throes, Sylvia bit through her lip, nearly severing each of them. Her vaginal cavity was nearly swollen shut, although an examination of the canal determined that her hymen was still intact, along with a lack of any ripping or tearing to the rectum. Gertrude's assertion that Sylvia was a prostitute and completely disproving her insistence that she was pregnant. The official cause of death was brain swelling, internal hemorrhaging of the brain and shock. Sylvia's funeral was conducted at the Russell and Hitch Funeral Home in Lebanon on the afternoon of October 29th. The service was officiated by the Reverend Lewis Gibson with more than a 100 mourners in attendance. Sylvia's grey casket remained open throughout the ceremony, with a portrait of her taken prior to July 1965, adorning her coffin. In his eulogy, the Reverend Gibson stated, quote, We all have our time. We won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life. The Reverend then strode towards Sylvia's casket before adding, She's gone to eternity. Following this service, Sylvia's casket was placed by Paul Barris in a hearse and driven to Oak Hill Cemetery to be interred. This hearse was one of the 14 vehicles processioned to drive to the cemetery for Lycan's burial. Her headstone is inscribed with the words, Our Darling Daughter. The case of the State of Indiana versus Gertrude Banaszewski, John Banaszewski, Paula Banaszewski, Ricky Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard, commenced in May of 1966. The prosecution sought the death penalty for all involved, including John and Hobbs, who were 13 and 14 at the time. Paula's time in court was interrupted when she was rushed to the hospital to give birth to the child that she and her mother had insisted she wasn't carrying. In a show of solidarity, Paula named her child Gertrude. On May 2nd and 3rd, Jenny Likens testified against all five defendants, stating that each had repeatedly and extensively both physically and emotionally abused her sister, adding that Sylvia had done nothing to provoke the assault and that there had been no truth in either the rumours she had been falsely accused of spreading or the slurs each had made against her character. During her testimony, Jenny stated Abuse her sister, and to a much lesser degree herself, had endured began approximately two weeks after they had begun to live in the household. Jenny burst into tears as she recalled how, just days before Sylvia died, she had said to her, quote, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I am going to die. I can tell it. Sections of Jenny Lycan's testimony were later corroborated by that of Frandy Lepper having witnessed Stephanie strike Likens, quote, real hard, after her mother had ordered her to remove clothes in his presence. He then visibly smirked as he confessed to having himself beaten Likens on anywhere between 10 to 40 separate instances. Banaszewski and the children's case were exacerbated by the fact that they were being represented by four different attorneys one for Vanaziski, one for Paula, one for Hobbs, and one for Coy and John. 
all of whom worked against each other and attempted to shift blame against the other defendants, even though they were all being tried together. Banaszewski's attorney attempted to shift blame onto the children, portraying her as a weak, chronically ill and incapable of preventing or perpetrating any of the abuse. The children's attorney attempted to shift blame onto Banaszewski and the other children. Some of the most damning testimony against Banaszewski was due to her own self-incrimination. She recounted bizarre tales of Sylvia being a neighbourhood prostitute and of her trysts with middle-aged married men, as well as accusing her of frequently starting fights in the home. To corroborate her testimony, 11-year-old Marie was called to the stand. Initially, Marie backed up everything her mother had said, until during cross-examination, she suddenly screamed, quote, God help me, before admitting everything she said was a lie. Oh, well done. Yeah, and went on to, to recount in graphic, blunt detail how her mother and siblings had tortured and murdered Sylvia. The young girl's shocking turn against her own family was largely responsible for the eventual verdict. Banaszewski was found guilty of murder in the first degree. She received life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Paula Banaszewski was convicted of second degree murder and she appealed and was granted a new trial. But before it began, she struck a plea bargain and pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and she served, guess how long she served? I to imagine. Three years You're before joking. she was paroled. John Banaszewski, Hubbard and Hobbs were each convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 18 months oh, you're in a juvenile detention facility. <sighs> By the time the now 17-year-old Hobbs was released, the severity of his crimes had sunk in and he suffered a nervous breakdown. He began a regime of heavy chain smoking, which severely decayed his lungs. By the time he was 21, he had died of lung cancer. Whoa. Banaszewski appealed and was granted a new trial and was again found guilty, though this time she was sentenced to 18 years to life. Over the course of the next 18 years, Banaszewski became a model prisoner, don't they all? Don't they all? (laughs) Working in the sewing shop and becoming a den mother to younger female inmates. By the time she came up for parole in 1985, she had earned the prison nickname Mum. No. That gives me um Catherine Knight vibes. Yep. Mm. The news of Banaszewski's parole hearing sent shockwaves to the Indiana community. Jenny Likens and her family appeared on television to speak out against her. The members of two anti-crime groups, Protect the Innocent and the Society League Against Molestation, travelled to Indiana to oppose her parole and support the Likens family, beginning a sidewalk picket campaign. Over the course of two months, the group collected 4,500 signatures from the citizens of Indiana, demanding that she be kept behind bars. In spite of all this, she was paroled. No. During the hearing, she gave the following confession. I am not sure what role I had in it, because I was on drugs. I never really knew her. I take full responsibility for what happened to Sylvia. Banaszewski walked out of prison on December 4th, 1985 and travelled to Iowa under the name Nadine Van Fossen. 
She died there of lung cancer in 1990. The location of her children remains largely unknown. Paula Banaszewski moved to Iowa and assumed a new identity. Internet rumors claim that she is still alive and lives on a farm somewhere in the Iowa countryside. Stephanie Banaszewski became a school teacher and assumed a new name. I really don't think she should be allowed around children. This is all ludicrous. Yes. John Banaszewski changed his name to John Blake and worked as a truck driver before becoming a real estate agent and a lay minister. He was never arrested again, and he married and had three children, only surfacing briefly in 1998 in the wake of the Jonesboro Massacre, to speak for the first time about the Likens murder, saying that he took full responsibility for his role in the murder and that a harsher sentence would have been more just. And I actually agree with him there. Mm. Harsher sentence would have been more just. As do I. Jenny Likens later married Leonard Reese Wade. The couple had two children, but she remained traumatised by the abuse she had been forced to watch her sister endure. For the remainder of her life, Jenny was dependent upon anxiety medication. She died of a heart attack on June 23, 2004, at the age of 54. Fourteen years prior to her death, Jenny had viewed Gertrude's obituary in the newspaper. She clipped the section from the newspaper, then mailed it to her mother with an accompanying note that read, quote, Some good news. Damn old Gertrude's died. Ha ha ha. I am happy about that. Elizabeth and Lester Likens died in 1998 and 2013, respectively. In the years prior to her own death, Jenny Likens Wade had repeatedly emphasised no blame should be placed upon either of her parents for placing her and Sylvia in the care of Gertrude Banaszewski, stating all her parents had done was to trust Gertrude and her promise to take care of them until they returned. The house in which Likens was tortured and murdered stood vacant for many years. The property gradually became dilapidated it was demolished on April 23, 2009, and is now a church parking lot. In June 2001, a six-foot-tall granite memorial was formally dedicated to Sylvia Likens. This dedication was attended by several hundred people, including members of the Likens family. The memorial itself is inscribed with the words, Quote, this memorial is in the memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. I see a light, hope. I feel a breeze, strength. I hear a song, relief. Let them through, for they are welcome ones. This poem inscribed on the granite memorial. There's a advocacy center, the Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center, is officially dedicated to the memory of Sylvia Likens. It was founded in 2010 in Lebanon, Indiana, and initially was named the Boone County Child Advocacy Center. This nonprofit organization was renamed in her honor in 2016 with the executive director stating, The most important thing that we can do is tell kids they are hurt, 
and we are listening. This was something that no one did for young Sylvia. Her family is thankful, though. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. She did not die in vain. She died a horrific death, but because of that, we're hoping that another child can be saved. And then I've just got a couple of little examples of things that have been based on her death. Jack Ketchum's The Girl Next Door is a fictional story loosely based on the murder and a movie based on the book was released in 2007. A film, American Crime, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2007. And the Sylvia Likens case was documented on the Born Bad episode of Deadly Women on the Investigation Discovery Channel. And that is my story. Well, that was truly horrific. It was absolutely horrific. truly horrific. And to think that those people are walking around or were allowed to walk yep. around, absolutely disgusting. And I like I believe any of those people who knew about it. Like Phyllis. Like, there were so many people, the Reverend, like, there would be other neighbours, like, people at school. I did see that there was another boy who's, like father rang up and they sent someone like a social worker there as well and they went home and they're like no so it's not like even though some people did report it people who were supposed to that be there and search the house and make sure this kid's okay obviously didn't do their job and someone could have saved her it has improved dramatically Mm. the the social work side of things thank goodness I don't usually cry, but that one had me in tears. I know, you went quiet. It made me want to vomit. It was disgusting. It's horrendous. I just, I like, how do you come up with stuff to do like that? And then how do you get so many people? Like, neighbourhood kids, like, all your own kids. Because I've already picked mine for next week. Mm. Well, this week, I don't even know when, <laughs> sometime in the future. But, like, and next it's Monday. it's horrible, but it does actually have a good outcome. Okay. We want a good outcome because this outcome, one was not. was just. All of it was bad. All right. I guess we'll see everyone next week. Maybe. I don't know if anyone's coming back after that. <laughs> after that one. Well, yeah, I'm coming back after that. Horrendous story. Yeah. Everyone go do something nice and think nice thoughts. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can follow us at Facebook at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky, on Twitter at hashtag or solved, Instagram at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. You can email us at podcast at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky dot com. And if you want to support the show, go to Podfan and find Solved, Unsolved or Spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.